You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. Have you ever wondered how a Russian intelligence officer is trained? Ever wondered what it would be like to be a defector? Ever wondered what it would be like to be given three choices? Shoot yourself, get shot, or go on the run? If so, you'll appreciate this week's episode with Jan Neumann, who was born Alexei Yurevich Artamonov in the former Soviet Union. Jan's father was a KGB internal affairs officer, and he would go on to join one of his successors, the FSB, or Federal Security Service, in which his wife also served. He's involved in a number of projects here in the States where he now lives, which we discuss in the episode. In this episode, we discuss how one gets recruited into Russian intelligence, what the training is like for its officers, what it's like to run counterintelligence on the streets of Moscow, and spotting, assessing, and recruiting agents from Jan's point of view. If you appreciate SpyCast and the hard work we do bringing it to you every week, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It will mean a lot to us, even if you write a single sentence. I'm so glad that we finally got around to doing this because we met way back when, a couple of years ago, uh, for a program, a public program at the Spy Museum. And we've been trying to arrange this for between the intervening periods and so much has happened. So I'm really glad that now we're finally doing it. Yeah, uh, Andrew, thank you for having me here. Finally, I'm back to the Spy Museum. 
for the intervening period or for people that have just recently came to the podcast. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, Janosh. I could do it like in a couple of minutes, but if you could do it, I think it would be even better. I am a former Russian counterintelligence officer. I was born and grew up in the Soviet Union. I started my service in Russian counterintelligence while I was 17 years old. I graduated from the FSB Academy. My main specialization is to get crimes in espionage forms, political industrial. Later, I was uh, transferred and work as an operative, and my job was to recruit sources among Russian and a foreign citizen in the um, economics line. So it was a lot of fun to work with the foreign businessmen and recruit them to work for Russian state as a sources. After that, I was appointed as a deputy head of economic security to one of the Russian private banks, which later became the major hub for the state-sponsored money laundering operation. Operations, it's a multi-billion dollar operations. You guys most likely heard about this through the magnificent Deutsche Bank operations. So the bank for which I was, to which I was attached and where I supervised some operations, actually Deutsche Bank was a partner of this. I don't have brought any other names because I don't want to go into the court. But so overall, after that, I figured out what this whole thing is about. I initially, my thought was that it was supposed to be some kind of a sting operation. We're doing this favor for our state. And it's like a spy movie. We're doing this work on a global scale. It's interesting. But later I figured out that's pretty much not about the state. It's all about make money for state officials, including guys inside the Russian intelligence community. And I tried to quit but there is no way out from the submarine, as I was told. So I had only, so I had only one choice. They actually gave me three choices. So pretty much go the officer's way. So to classify myself, put it this way. Second thing, second, they're going to do it for me or just leave. Leave was the worst option because in this case, you have to take all the shame and blame on yourself. While we've been trying, to, I, with my wife as well, I, we've been trying to figure out how to leave the country. We decided to go in the third way. We figured out it's pretty complicated to do because they put flag on us, which is pretty much impossible to leave the country. I used some connections within the counterintelligence service and the guys opened the gates for me. So we've been able to escape, leave Russia in this moment. And uh, we went to the Dominican Republic. Choice was because the Dominican Republic is back in the days had no any kind of really high level of Russian intelligence activity on the ground. Uh, no Russian embassy. It was just a consulate. Consulate was under the management of some local person. So this person was not even a Russian citizen. We won some time. We settled on the ground. We figured out communication with the Russian. I had some friends on the ground there, people who been providing me with information about what's going on. Uh, and after some time, we figure out that it's pretty impossible to stay on our own and we need some help. And we found a way how to connect with the U.S. officials from the agency. The good news, I was trained to catch them, so it was not a big, big, really complicated to get in touch with them in this case. So from this moment, we've been transferred by U.S. government on U.S. soil. Even the original idea was to let us go to Europe because my wife, she speaks multiple European languages, same as I am. And... It, was, it would have been pretty easy for us to just melt and just disappear in Europe. I might have opened some um, flower shop in Lisbon. That was an idea. I mean, honestly, guys, I do love flowers. But again, they brought us to the United States. And here in the States, we've been working for U.S. government agencies for quite a few years, helping in investigate crimes in intelligence, in uh, illegal money laundering, money uh, operations here in the States and overall in Europe and on global scale as well, helped U.S. government and U.S. government allies with some ongoing investigations. So yes, and uh, 
after some time working for them, we were on our own. And uh, now I'm fully involved in the entertainment industry. We have a really big project coming with the International Spy Museum. I guess we can do some disclosure right now. It calls the Real Spy Comics. That would be the only comic book company which is dedicated to produce stories about the spies, counterintelligence operations, and special operations only. We're not going to have any superheroes in the spandex. We're going to have superheroes as real people. When we tell these stories, we have full support from the intelligence community and the partners in this kind of entity is myself, my partner, Nicholas Leeds, and Spycraft Entertainment, which is run by John Cypher and Jerry Oshie, CIA Legends. So that's pretty much what's going on right now. So much threads that I want to pull on there, but just to go back to the beginning, you come from a family where intelligence is almost a family business, that's correct? Yeah, that says that I had pretty much no choice where to go. So it's more as it was in Britain and um, again, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe up to now even. Here in States, up to early 80s, it's old boys club where pretty much system is trying to fulfill itself from within. I guess in this case, they are sure that they're going to have people who are really loyal to the system. And at the same time, people who understand what the system is about. Yes, my parents both were in um, affiliate organizations back in the Soviet Union. But again, and on the moment when I had to make a decision to leave the country, they were not on my side in this case. So they were, we, let's say, I can't say they became enemies. No, we just kind of had different opinion about some things. And the FSB, just for our listeners that don't know, the FSB is the Domestic Security Intelligence Service, right? That's like MI5 and the FBI, or is it something different? FBI is more as a Russian investigative committee, but FSB has some functions from the FBI, but I would have called FSB as more internal CIA, as you wish, because FSB is doing a lot of work with the unofficial work, let's put it this way. It's pretty much like 90% of the whole operations. For FBI to get to some place, you need to have a paperwork from the court. For FSB, not so much. So that's the difference. If FBI is signing contracts with the people if they're working as a sources for the FBI. And FSB is pretty much signing with the devil. You're signing like one page handwritten agreement, but you're going to provide information for an FSB as a source. And there is no expiration date for that. Also, uh, yeah, and of course, FSB is involved on an anti-counter-terrorist kind of operation. Uh, working with, again, some kind of radical elements as well. But pretty much it's a counterintelligence machine which is, covers all spheres of life in Russia. Also, FSB is doing outside work too, which is a mistake when people do think that's a domestic only. No, it's not. And for the FSB, can you talk about the legacy and the inheritance of the Soviet era? After the Soviet Union dissolves, there's a there's an evolution of the Russian intelligence community, right? And you end up with the SVR, the GRU, and the FSB. So how much of that internal KGB legacy becomes part of the FSB's culture? Well, starting from the, from the school, from the training, FSB Academy is previously known as a KGB high school. When I was in it, it was already Russia, not the Soviet Union, but right the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, all the books were made in the Soviet Union, they had the KGB logos on it. All the teachers came from the KGB system. When I joined the service, all the rules, regulations, pretty much logo on the top of these books were changed. But I, the same idea was as it, it was. Uh, they just sometimes been telling us just to skip a few pages because these pages were all about the role of political party in our operations. So there's no need in this anymore. The rest was just as it was. Mm. 
Uh, of course, legal system changed slightly. It was just modified. Something, some articles became less complicated and um, less, let's say, less useful in our days. But overall, it was pretty much the same organization with the same attitude, same people, same idea. Not much has changed. And I guess right now, I don't know what's going on exactly. I guess they're trying to build their own ideological base. So it will be the maybe like KGB to zero with a new ideology integrated into it. For sure, they're not going to use how it was during the Soviet time because no communism in Russia officially. It will be something new uh, and they're working on it right now. But again, overall, the same thing. Just the best example how it was. In mid and late 90s and early 2000s, I uh, met quite a few high-rank officials. And some of these guys, they had in their offices portrait of the current president, who was a Russian current commander-in-chief. They had the portrait of Dzerzhinsky, then portrait of Andropov, and a bunch of icons. I'm not sure how this all can be put together and work, but that's how it was. So I guess that's the strange mix of uh, different philosophies and different angles. But I guess they found their way how to, how to do it. And Zerzensky is a, a legendary founding figure in Good Russian father. intelligence. Yes. Iron Felix always was a symbol, and he, I guess he always will be a symbol of serving to his country. And Andropov was one of the premiers in the early 80s, I believe. Yes. Yeah. One, I guess, as for now... After Dzerzhinsky, he is the best head of the Russian Secret Service. That's right. He was the head of the Secret Service, and then he became the Prime Minister, uh, the leader of the Soviet Union, and yes. afterwards. Yes, but for a short period of time, he, uh, I guess he died for some liver disease or some kind of medical condition. It was view inside the KGB system and inside the FSB as well that Andropov would have been like a Russian version of the Dan Alpine. So his idea was he had like... Pretty liberal views how the country is supposed to go. And uh, again, overall view is that it would have been less disastrous compared to what Gorbachev was able to accomplish. Mm. Just out of interest, I'm, I'm just walking forward from where you started with your story through to uh, Real Spies, Real Comics. So we spoke about your family and the FSB. I was just wondering, a lot of our listeners, you know, were, I know that you didn't go through training in the United States, but you're very well connected into that network and you know lots of people. So I just wondered if you had a sense of in any ways in which the training was different. How much of it would you say was similar and how much of it was different? One thing in common is respect. So basically, it doesn't matter you're trained by Russians, Americans, Brits, Israeli or someone else. They're going to teach you one thing. You have to respect your opponent, your counterpart. If the worst mistake you can make is under underestimation of your abilities of your rivals. So people against whom you're working. So that's the mistake number one. Also, be precise and careful with details because, again, in this business, everything is about details and it's pretty much the same uh, here in States and um, in Britain, for example, the guys, you know, Israeli guys training, Russian training as well. It's hard to say about intensity of the training because I've never been inside the U.S. training system. I've, as, as for FSB, it's five years. You're training wow. and, and then you... It's interesting. It's not only the tradecraft thing itself. You learning a lot of legal stuff too. So it's, it's a law school. It's military training as well. And it's also the tradecraft training too. So you learning not only about how to do things on your side, you learning how your, as Russian call them, partners from the overseas are doing the job, doing things too. 
So, which is really interesting as well. I guess that was maybe one of the most interesting subjects we have to go through. And I'm, again, I'm not sure how it here, but in Russia, it was mo- most of the disciplines, they had only a number and it called a special discipline. That's pretty much it. You can't take the textbook back home with you. Not going to happen. You can't take your, can't take any of your um, papers which you're writing with you back home as well. So everything's supposed to be, you're supposed to leave it all inside the academy. It's, it's interesting. Yes, you're arriving at 8 o'clock in the morning, you're leaving about 6 p.m. in the evening if you have nothing else to do. So most likely you have to go to the library, you have to stay in the facility. You So you have to do some duties as well because, again, it's a partly military training too. So you have to do some senseless uh, duties. <laughs> so they get trying to, they're trying to make you as busy as possible. I guess may, maybe that's the right way to do for people who are like age 17 to 20. So keep this energy inside. Otherwise, there's going to be some disaster and some problems. So they've been doing their best trying to make everyone busy as much as is possible. They tend to get recruited younger then because people generally don't join the CIA when they're 17 to 20. It's usually after they've graduated college in the States. There are some plus and minuses in, in it. As I said, the FSB Academy in this case, they're going to give you like full high-level education. So in my case, it's a master's in law. Oh, so you're doing a degree as well? Yeah, that's correct. Right, okay. So yes, you have a master's in law in my case, and you're going for this whole legal training as a normal law school. So imagine on the top of the learning the tradecraft and how your other guys are supposed to do the work, plus the military basic training as well as an officer. You have to go for the law school simultaneously. And during one day, you could have had the, sub- the subjects from different, kind of all, all, from all three different revenues or venues. It's pretty complicated, but it's at the same time it's really interesting too. But again, maybe that's the reason is because Russians trying to take you as early as possible and then just to build the way they want, the way they see, just to make you just a full integrated part of the system of the machine. In US, they, I guess, seems like they're going to give you the childhood so you can go into the college, have all the fun, and then they're going to put you in service. You're going to spend several years learning and then just join the service. So in our case, we missed all this fun stuff. We kind of, our fun stuff was 28 days a year. The rest was just work. It sounds very intense. Yes, but again, you get used to it. And again, the reason is because there is no way out. <laughs> just kind of, you pretty much... <laughs> Suck yeah, it up. <laughs> yeah, you, you signed that you're going to stay in it. So there's, there's not, not much of the choice you have. You mentioned it was the system replenishing itself from within. Was this your father talking to you or was this someone tapping you on the shoulder or how, how did it work? Because I grew up in as, as a part of this system. So if I remember correctly, I was like age five. I was sent, it was deep, deep into the Soviet Union time. It was on the pike of the Cold War. I was sent to the summer camp, which belongs to the KGB as well. So imagine that. So all the kids around you, they're pretty much kids from the people from the system and the teachers or the staff of the summer camp, they are, KGB officers in young level, but they all, the guards around the camp, they are KGB guys. So kind of imagine this scale of what's going on. If you're going on vacation with your family, KGB, it was, it was a state inside the state. You had all these resorts under the KGB or military management. So pretty much everyone around you, they're military personnel, so officers, or they're KGB or Russian intelligence personnel as well. So by just growing in, inside this, by listening to what this guy's been talking about, you're already like a sponge. You're already absorbing all this information and you 
pretty much where you where you're going. I had a few attempts just to maybe go like into some normal law school, but it was shut down pretty much instantly. Of course, I had some um, pep talks with uh, my dad's friends and, and such, but again, it was just like every yeah, it was pretty obvious where you're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have to compete. You have to you have to go through this evaluation process. You have to go through the uh, examination and such, but tests. But pretty much is direction where you're going. And are languages part of that? No, that's the thing. So we, uh, we uh, in NFSB training is it's must have. So a language is a must have thing. How you can recruit a foreign source if you don't speak a language, mm. at least on the basic level. My language is not precise. It's not at Oxford level, but it's enough to recruit a person. Mm. So that's that's the thing. So it's, you have to learn. So you learned English. I had English, yes, and I had a basic German, and then one thing I'm not going to tell you. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but overall, you're learning not only the language, you're learning the culture as well. That's really interesting because you know with whom you have to work and how you're going to approach the person if you're not, you don't understand the nature of this person, the mentality, the culture, or some traditions. Without that, it's pretty much impossible. I feel like culture is always undervalued. To me, it's like an operating system and you need to know how to right and within the operating system in a language that it understands to me that's almost like what culture is but people often overlook it and think that it doesn't matter as much as it actually does it is matters like uh, maybe in a, in a global like in a global world globalistic type of the idea where everything is the same is not maybe the key element but again Back in the 90s and early 2000s, and it seems like in the future, the, knowing the culture of the person with whom you're working is really important. Because again, by knowing the culture, you mean you're learning the mentality. As long as you know the mentality, you can find the better approach to this person if you want to recruit this person. So it's all piece of the puzzle. You can't just approach with, use the same approach to everyone. It, it's different. It's just, it's not going to happen. And also these people are not like living on the same street as you are. They don't grow, grow up in the same street as you are. They came from different places all around the globe. Uh, you had to deal with some guys from Belgium and France. You have to find the difference between them and what this guy's up to. And that was always a problem. So kind of you have to be careful what you're saying. And, <laughs> and even Northern Belgium and Southern Belgium. Right? Yes, there are a bunch of the complications. And uh, yes, it's interesting. Just before we move on from the training, um, I'm sure you will have seen this, but if you watch American movies and TV shows, whenever it shows Soviet or Russian intelligence officers being trained, it's almost like the training that uh, Ivan Drago goes through. They seem to be physical supermen who are running with logs on their back and smashing doors no, no, down hold on, stuff. hold on, hold on, hold on. So. <laughs> Logs on the back, it was Rocky. Draga was going through the really precise training in a really cutting-edge medical facility, which is actually true. If Based on the recent the doping scandals, pretty much the Draga movie was about the true. So that was the... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I've just drawn on various parts of the movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, what, what was it like? How physically onerous was it? And how does that compare to the American system, and as far as you know, what happens in the American system? Physical culture is a big part of it, big deal. Uh, we maybe were not trained as a Navy SEALs, that's for sure. Swimming was a key element, but not the thing you're going to spend all your day doing this. It was a lot of running, what I remember, and I really hate to run. So I some basic stuff, like as a normal military guy is going to do, like pull-ups, push-ups, lifting some weights, a lot of martial arts involved as well. But because I was in the investigator's and part of the training. So I had to go for the more legal training. And the guys who've been in operative training at the beginning, they've been doing 
way more than we are physical training and uh, martial arts. So we spend more time on the books, they spend more time on the tatami. So, but later I was working as an operation. I'm going to tell you that spending more time on the books and learning the legal part is more helpful than just throwing people around. So that's, that's what I learned. <laughs> Again, maybe it's different. Some, someone has different experience, but in my case, it was that way. Shooting, different types of weapon systems made in Russia, Soviet Union, made in, uh, in the West. And FSBKing, they have a really good collection of stuff, which was, let's say, brought as a presence from all, all around the globe by Russian intelligence and cadets can use it and learn it and study it as well. So yeah, it's pretty much on daily basis you have to do something physical as well. I mean, and look for 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, 21, 22 years old, that's perfect. That's, you need somehow to release your testosterone, your energy, otherwise it's going to end up pretty bad. So I guess they, they found a way how to deal with that. And then again, while the service was, I mean, during the service every year, you have to do some run, some physical tests. And it was interesting then, you're joining the unit. Of course, they're going to send on the young guys to compete and just do this thing. So the older guys are always trying to find an excuse how not to do things. So they're always busy with some operations or somewhere. So it was interesting. And again, and before that, I had a sports background. I was in a central sports semi club. Again, since I was a kid inside the system. So kind of, yeah, sports always was a fun. And again, guys, back in the 80s, 70s, it was not about the computer games because it was not exist. It was all about make yourself busy and make yourself busy mean do sports. It was pretty much, it was pretty lame not to be involved in any sports. So pretty much you can't get a girlfriend if you're not doing anything. So that's... <laughs> that's the context. <laughs> <laughs> and this training was in Moscow? Yeah. 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 Clear Moscow area. Logistically, it had more sense. And they have a bunch of the facilities, so yeah, it was not a big deal. Just out of interest, the people back home where I'm from say Moscow, but he, people in the States say Moscow. What's the one that's closer to how Russians pronounce it? None of it. None of it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how would the Russians pronounce it? M Moskva. Okay, okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> and then from there, so the investigation and then you become an operative. It, yeah, Help me understand this. You're, you, are you undercover when you're doing this or is it more like the FBI where people know what your job is and you're walking around with the suit and the gun and stuff? Help us understand what the environment is like. Well, I mean, you have to wear the suit, yes, because I was working in the headquarters. But again, if you're doing, going on some operation, the suit is not necessary. Jeans, some jacket and, and such. Of course, we had all had cover ideas too. So besides your official credential with your name in it and which is matching your passport and such, you we had a cover passports, cover credentials. We had um, even police credentials. Just to be sure we have it all. It all depends how you're going to do and what you're doing, what kind of operation is going, whom you're going to approach. Some people you're not going to approach as an FSB, it will be different flag. Maybe they do understand with whom they're talking, but it's not necessary for you just to flash your credits credential around. Back in the days, it was no such thing as a badge. So no fancy stuff like an FBI. But everyone's trying to stay as modest as possible and just not to show your credentials. You have ability to carry the gun, but not many guys have been doing this. The reason is it's gun is going to bring you attention, intention to you. Plus, this, I do believe that bringing gun into some meetings with the people who want to recruit, especially business people, not going to give you anything. It's going to be against you just because it means bringing the gun, it's a, it's a sign of mistrust. People won't be um, happy to talk to you. They're going to feel insecure. And if I, I was carrying this just several times when I had to, but 
No. Yeah, if, again, as I said, FSB is more, you're pretty much doing the spy work. Again, it's in a, in a unit where I was working. And for the, I meant to follow up on this point, on the, when you watch the training for Russian intelligence officers and, and movies or TV shows, you had a look there, oh my God, don't even go there. So I just wondered if you could share with our listeners, what are the kind of things that when you watch this, you'd say to your, what do you rant to your wife about? What are you like, what the heck are they doing? This is so wrong. <laughs> or, not, uh, not much Not much was shown in, in American movies about the kind of male training of the, the Russian spies. It was more about like guys with a really strong Russian accent who are doing this, I mean, which is ridiculous. But so my wife, she went through the same training as I am. And she, she was working in the same system as I am. But she's way more educated and more trained than I am at some point. And she's more a uh, cyber person. When we tried to watch The Red Sparrow, uh, it's pretty much ended for us in the first 20 minutes. We were not able to stand it. So again, if you look at this movie, just keep in mind, not even close to reality. So it's always exaggerated. It's always just trying to make look Russians to look as if they are super crazy and they're just they're always pushing them over the limits. It's like a Navy Seals Seal training on the steroids. No, that's not true as well. So it's no one is trying to kill you during the training. They're just trying to push you to show your best. But again, what they're telling you, and that's most important, you're doing this not for us, you're doing this for yourself. More you can observe, more you can learn, more you can get from what you're doing. It's going to help you more in the future. If you, if you want to pass on it, fine, pass on it. But then you're going to struggle when you're going to join the service. So it's faster you're going to understand the, why do we need it better for you. But then the interesting part is when I came to work initially as, a, as an investigator, I had my own like a big office space and just my personal room with all this fancy stuff in it. First thing what they told me, just forget about everything what you learn in the academy. So five years, <laughs> five years wasted. Yes. So then, then I joined the operative unit. The guy's been really suspicious because you came as an as a as an investigator. So you're basically just decreasing yourself from to the operative level. My my boss back in the day, he was like old KGB type shark operative who spent his career inside the service. He told me like, okay, first of all, forget about again, forget about everything what you learned in the academy. Now forget about everything what you've been doing as an investigator. Just you have to learn from the beginning. It's like. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. For our listeners, like just to come back to your career, so... What types of places were you? you? Were you in Moscow, St. Petersburg, other parts of the country, other parts of the world, other parts of Europe, or all of the above? Was My main place of work was, of course, Moscow, but due to I had the sources, I had to travel as well just to meet with the guys. I had a several, quite a few, let's put it this way, quite a few trips outside the Russia, so primarily Europe, and of course inside the Russia too. 
But again, it was um, kind of just routine. It's not normal work. I was not, not like I was stationed somewhere. I was just sent somewhere. No, short trips, few days, maybe a week or so. Nice. One trip was really nice. I had to meet with the guys from like a Polish potential future sources. And uh, I even had to travel to Egypt on diving resort. It was really nice. So state paid for it. And it was nice. I spent really nice time and pretty successful dealing with these guys. Sharm El Sheikh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so beside the, the ethics and the morality of the system, did you enjoy the work? Did you enjoy the investigating, the analyzing, identifying, recruiting sources, all of that more day-to-day type stuff? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it's a game at some point. You're just playing this game. I mean... Being honest with you, it's not a James Bond movie, so 65% of the, 60% of the time you have to do a lot of really boring paperwork, which is downside of all the work for the state, and uh, it's annoying, but the rest is really entertaining. You're meeting really cool people, interesting people, interesting characters, interesting backgrounds, interesting stories. You're just playing this mind games, you're playing like a big chess game. you pretty much on your own at some point. You just, some rules, regulations, not so much. It doesn't mean that you have to run like a Jason board and shoot everyone around. No, not going to happen. No, it's not. It means that you have to be creative. You have to think outside the box. You can't have a tunnel vision. This, this is no go. It's it's more, the work is operative to do. It's more like a form of art, put it this way. I do consider trade craft as a form of art. It's not the craft itself. You can't just do the, because if it's a craft, then it means you have to do the same thing again, again, and again. It's not mass-scale production, it's art, because every source is unique, every person is unique, every operation is unique. Yes, something, some small things may be matching, but overall, it's every time it's a new challenge, it's a new goal, uh, and you have to prepare yourself. Yeah. I Honestly, I'm not a big fan of ballet, but one of my sources was a big ballet fan. So I had to go to the Bolshevik Theater, watch this again and again and again. I had to do some learning, just at least to be, to be able just to talk to the guy. But same thing was happening with the art as well. I do have some small background in art school. So going to some galleries and talk to the people, just, in, just establish this contact, be sure that you're using at least the same terminology as they are, just to get into this and just to, to be able then in the future to support the conversation, be, interest, be interesting to this person whom you're trying to approach. So it's all, all really, really interesting part of work. And again, you have to self, you have to do your homework. You have to develop yourself. You have to improve yourself all the time on a small thing. You have like a self-growth process, as you wish. It's not just because I have so much free time, I have to do it. No, because that's the part of the work. Otherwise, you won't be able to succeed in what you do. If you're not learning, then what's the point of you? Yeah, that's interesting. But again, it's entertaining, it's interesting, and yeah, I really enjoyed some work, some stuff I was doing. But I was not a big fan of paperwork. I find this really interesting. For you, do you think this was something that you were born with? Are good recruiters born with this intuitive understanding of other human beings, or is this something that you're taught, or is it a combination of both? Because it's quite interesting, because I'm very... It's a very refined game that has to be played. It's almost like being an actor, but with additional responsibilities and and the stakes being much higher. You have to constantly think about how you can mould and shape yourself so that you're going to fit into a particular situation. So 
for creating that person that can communicate with someone that's into Bali, that's a that's a very refined kind of nuanced thing to be able to do. So is that something that most people like you were born with, do you find? Or do you find that it's more something that you learned and developed or was it a little bit of both? It's pretty much like in any business. It's about 10% of talent. The rest is just hard work. So we all have, we're all born with some things. It's just the question is how we develop them. So in this case, you have to be friendly. You have to be uh, not just completely open, but just friendly, be able to make friends, establish contact with the people, not to be open just to leak some information, not to look silly in this case, but more as kind of be interesting to these people. As you said, it's like acting. You're just in this character. You're playing this. And again, keep in mind, you have different sources, different people, different mentalities. They have different religion beliefs, different kind of uh, social status, whatever it is. And for each person, you have to adopt yourself. So it's exactly as an acting as well. So you have to, like chameleon as you wish, for every every person, you have to kind of adjust yourself just to be sure that you're matching and you're still interesting uh, to this person. And you can just keep going and do some work with this person. And one day you might have several meetings with different people. So keep in mind that you have to reset. So with someone, you maybe have to go, people have different background. One of my guys who was working for me, he had a criminal background. Even he was a high-ranking businessman. But again, in this case, you have to be on his way, his way, and just maybe throw some, some criminal terminology as well, do some kind of a hand-talking, like the soprano family type thing. And then for the other guys, you have to be more as an intelligentsia type thing. You have to wear your glasses, and you have to talk about some high-level art, contemporary art stuff at least just to get into the conversation. So you have to switch, you have to adjust yourself. As a talent, who knows? I don't know. I think you can develop it. But again, naturally, you should be able to communicate with people. That's the thing, I guess, you only can be born with. Or maybe it's a, maybe a kind of a family thing. They can, a family can teach you how to do it. So open to people, open to, to, to the conversation, be able to sustain the conversation, just be in it, be part of it, yes. All the rest you can learn how to approach, what kind of tactic and technique you can use. It's again, And then you can find your own way how to use it. You can't do anything by book, by page. This is the dead end. No, because it's not ABC. It's always like D can be on the top of A. <laughs> you have to find your way how to deal with it. It's, a, it's pretty much like a creative mess, mm -hmm. as you wish. And you just need to find yourself how to deal with it. So you could be meeting a few different sources in the same day and... I understand that there has to be a mental shift and reset, but you mentioned the glasses there. So would you also, for one person, I'm going to be wearing a suit and looking very businesslike. For another person, I'm going to look very bohemian. For someone else, I'm just going to look like Joe Average. Yeah. Would, would that be part of it as well? Your hair, your persona, the way that you would carry yourself? Yeah, you have to, again, as I said, you have to adopt yourself to each meeting, to each person, to each personality. It all depends. You can't, if you're going to treat them all the same, they won't be, they're not going to have any interest to talk to you. So they want to see in you not only their, their handler, whom person whom they are supporting the information. They want to see in you just like a friend, let's say a business partner, someone with whom they are willing to share some information. And actually whom you have to ask for favors to do some work. And it's more like it's, it's acting. It's you you preparing yourself for this scene, and you're adopting yourself to this exact to this particular conversation. 
So when you're going to the meeting, you're already playing this in your head. What you're going to what you're going to do, and it all depends upon what kind of task was given to this person, what information you received, what you're looking for, blah blah blah. So it's a lot of different aspects. But again, you have to adjust yourself. You have to be flexible, let's say, as a, in your mind, which is really the most important part, and be able to control your emotions. Because people coming to you, they have maybe had bad days, some problems in the family, they're afraid to do the thing you ask them to do. They feel really uncomfortable to do this stuff. So you have to understand that you have a lot of responsibility, you're handling them. You're not only just giving them a task, you have to tell them how to do it. You're training them as well. As an operative, you have to train your source how to do the things. You're not only just, okay, you have to do this and that. You just go ahead, do it. No. <laughs> You have to teach them how maybe this could be done. Some kind of do some small brainstorm, explain to them how things could go and what if this is not going to happen? So what's the step? What's the plan B? What's the plan C? It's, it's, it's interesting work. But again, I don't know if I say anything inappropriate. But in this case, you, sh you uh, I mean, maybe if you have some kind of, if you're not completely normal person, it's maybe better for you if you're working as an operative. So in this case, you can you can have like several personalities in your head, and you just can adjust yourself. <laughs> okay. But may, again, it's it's not like you're supposed to be nuts and crazy. No, it's just it's it it means that you have to be in the state of mind, like flexible mind, be open for something new, be open for to adjust yourself for for kind of new challenge for something new all the time, and be able to hold your emotions because I mean, look, you do know that something you're gonna tell this person to do might be dangerous for this person at some point, right? So you you have to take this responsibility because here is a priority. Priority is just to get this information from this person and uh, kind of help your state. But you do know that this, this might be dangerous at some point. I'm sure many listeners have had this, but when there's someone that you like and you want to ask them out on a date or it's like a wooing or a seduction, there's a certain... Or, or, or if you want to think about it like a salesman, there's like a closing pitch. And that can be... I'm sure everybody's had the experience where it goes really well and then there's other experiences where it really doesn't. Through experience, you, you get better at it. How do you make sure you're not having a... You, you do this delicate dance to get them to a point and then you go in with a clumsy close and the and the recoil, like, what are you doing? Like, like that... I guess that, that final closing the deal, tell us about that part of it. It's hard to explain. I mean, if you wish, this job is more as a... a you're like a shoe salesman in, in selling the shoes for the woman. And every time you have to be nice, polite, you have to find your way how to do it, how to close the deal. And just, again, people coming with, with a different background and uh, um, some different mood, something maybe happened. And you always have to be find your way how to adjust yourself and deal with it. It's unique. There is no, like again, no ABCD. You can't just follow just normal standard procedures. That's not the way it's done. It's always something, something different. It's again, it is. It's hard to explain. It's you need to put yourself in, in a specific situation with a specific condition, knowing what's going on with this person. Some people, especially if it's a female source, she's going to come to you and she's going to for next maybe thirty minutes going to explain how was her day, how bad her husband or boyfriend, and you have to listen all. You have to absorb it. By the way, to this job, you have to be a good listener. That's really important. Because you have to maybe at some point talk less, just ask some sharp questions, let person just leak it, just let it go. Just let them talk. <laughs> let them talk. <laughs> you just need to guide them where to go with it. Some people are crazy with that, especially people from the scientific background, engineers, scientists, some of them, it's impossible to shut them 
after all. So kind of you already know you have to run and you're just trying to find a way how to get out of it. Because from 45 minutes monologue from this person, you maybe need only one sentence. But overall, <laughs> you have to listen, you have to get it. And he, here at the Spy Museum, we talk about some of the motivations for becoming a spy or becoming a source or an agent. Money, ideology, coercion, ego, those other ones you can add, love, seduction, a whole variety of things. Like for each source, I know you said it's very specific, a very specific set of conditions, a very specific person. You have to tailor your approach. But help our listeners understand like out of all of those different ways that you can try to get leverage, how do you decide which one it is? Is it just a case of when you're in the deep context of the moment and you're reading the situation, you just have an understanding of, yeah, this is going to be the best way to try to recruit this person? To be a spy, that's a different type of story, right? So it's all about your choices. Do you want to do it? How you don't understand what this is about? If you've been watching a lot of James Bond, Jason Bourne movies, it's not the way to go. So forget about this. No one's going to spend that much money on you. No one's going to give you that much money to live on. You're not going to drive the Rolls Royce or Bentley at some point. Yes, but no, for 99%, salary is not that fantastic. doesn't matter for whom you're working and where you're working. <laughs> it's like, so forget about this. So you kind of, it's supposed to be like really a weight in decision. I want to do it. I want to serve my country. It's going to be about the country. It's not about you. <laughs> If we're talking about the source or agents, as we call them in, in, in Russian terminology, agents, it's a person whom you recruited. It's not the how here in States, a federal agent. No, it's source. As for the source, it's not, okay, well, this guy looks good or this girl looks good on the street. Let me recruit her. No, you have to do a lot of preparation, a lot of work. Some, sometimes this could take years just to get to this person. You have to collect all the possible information as much as you can. So you're building like the whole port profile, the whole portfolio as you wish, the case about this person will be the candidate for the recruitment for a long period of time. You have to establish the connection uh, with this person somehow. I started to build a relationship for a long time. This person might have no idea who you are, for whom you're working. You're just a friend among the other friends. You're just kind of hanging together and just maybe going to the same gallery or to the same feature all the time. You just have a chit-chat, small talk, but at the same time, you're still collecting the information. Maybe you can push one of your existing sources close to this person to collect more information, to, uh, let, to ask your source just to ask some kind of questions to this person, to check uh, what this person is up to, what's her what's her political views, what's her financial situation, what's, her, what's going on in her mind and such, like his mind. So you have to build it all, like you're building this case, and then you can make a decision how you want to approach and what you're going to do with it. Again, you have several options. Maybe you can just convince this person, and based again, based on this pro profile, this uh, case, you can say, okay, this person might be going to work for, for their for organization based on a moral patriotic base. So a person really believes that what the organization is doing is really great, and this is this person's way to serve the country, and this is the right approach. And again, most of the people going this way, but they're going to have some benefits from this cooperation as well. So financial benefits help for the family, maybe to put someone into a good job or help kids to get into university and such. So the organization will help too, even if the person was recruited based on moral patriotic way. If person is really well set and rich, let's say person is a businessman or some entrepreneur, weird French word, by the way, you still can find the way how to work with them. Maybe they're not interested in money in this case, but they need some 
let's say, favors for the business going. So that's the way to approach as well. And they do know if they cooperate, they will have some green light on some things. State can close their eyes on some taxation, let's say, issues or some kind of trading operations or maybe help them to get a good contract with a state-affiliated big company involved in some energy business or construction. So that's all could be part of the uh, how to do it. Some people maybe will have information, organizations have information about this person is uh, pretty dirty, involved in some illegal activity. And in this case, blackmail, that's the way to approach. So again, FSB goal is not to put anyone in jail. FSB goal is to control the information and keep flow of the information going. So in, in this case, you just can use this person as a recruit this person, approach this person based on the compromise. A great word for the spy museum, compromise materials which you have. So that's the way to go as well. So a person will be working for you just because you allow this person to keep going with the, his or her business and you're not going to put them in jail, not going to open any case. But you have something which can use you can use and motivate this person to do the work. Yeah, so part of the answer comes in the process of establishing the relationship and doing the research to understand more about them and who they are and just building that picture out. So the way to approach them just partly comes in that research process and in the process of building the relationship. Yeah, you learning again, doing again, the 60 boring percent of the boring part of the work, collecting the information could be different type of sources. You can collect this information about this person whom you want to recruit from already existing sources. So you can push your sources next to this person and we'll call it light up. Get some light on the on this on the spot. Check what this person is about. This is one way. Second way, you're gonna put all the government, state, hell on wheels machine, and you can get all the data about this person. Again, medical records, taxations, property, family connections. Just name it. You're gonna find the way. You can find the way how to get uh, personal files of this per- about this person from place where the person is working. Even the business, you know, we all have our history. It's a, it's a world where everything is recorded. This could be done as well. Cyber stuff. What this person is searching on the internet. What kind of websites visiting. What kind of member of which clubs or some organizations or groups. All comes to you. Checking what kind of activities this person is up to. Maybe a person is involved in some charities. Maybe not so much. Maybe a person is going to some kind of a shooting range club. Maybe this person going into the feature all the time. Same thing, just hanging with. It's all going to be collected in one bulk of information which you can evaluate and work. And based on that, you can make, you can find the right approach to this person. In friends of this person, it's really interesting as well because your friends is going to put some influence on you. you you're always going to have some kind of effect of the communication with these guys, right? So that's important too. So maybe you can find first, get access to these friends and then from them to this person. Operative work is like a shark. You have to circle around the potential prey again, again, and again. And there is a other part of the job that why sharks are circling around the prey, because in this case, there's going to be a less negative part inside this person, because person is, when the person is afraid, the person is releasing this stuff all mm-hmm. around the place. So you have to, yeah, if you more is circling, clean up the view, clean up the picture you have. Mm. Have you ever circled around a source and found another shark and also doing the same thing? 
Yes, and it's because again, you have to check for your own like internal system too to see if it's a friendly shark. <laughs> if it was already recruited by someone, and quite a few times I had a call on my special operation phone saying, "Dude, this is ours." <laughs> <laughs> back off! <laughs> yeah, back off! It was already recruited, so yeah, just don't, don't go, don't go this way. But again, yeah, it's, this could happen. And sometimes you can see that someone else is around. And I had the situations too as well. It was really a kind of ugly situation when the guy was pretending that he's an engineer and the kind of I, obviously it was obvious for me that the guy is just from one of the competing organizations, but he had nothing to do with engineering. That's for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so that was someone from a competing organization domestically or was this someone from like... Domestically. Domestically, okay. yes. It's one of the guys from the different department and I saw him in the corridors. Yeah, dude, you're not an engineer. You just skip it. Like we spent the night, evening, good evening and I just met him in one of the corridors. I just, just stepped back. <laughs> but you've never this had... This is mine. <laughs> <laughs> but you've never had the experience where a shark from a... For a, from a foreign country or... No, they're not the sharks. They're preys in this case. We do know that it's always a part of the game too. When you're checking your source, there's always a possibility that this source was already working for some foreign intelligence agency. And here's the reason. If we're interested in this source as an organization, it means that this person has some value. A value means capabilities or information, access to the information. If we know that, other guys could know this about this too. So it means that there is always a possibility that this person was approached or might be approached or somehow uh, been involved in some activity from the other side too. So that's always part of the game as well. It's just kind of, it's, it's just, you're just coexisting with that. You just have to adjust yourself. And again, that's, uh, that's a big deal too. Let's say a person is working for some state-affiliated agency or for some science research institute, let's say, right? In this case, yes, this person's potentially high-profile target and potential target for foreign intelligence services, 100%. So when you're approaching this person or doing some research, you already have to, you, you have to keep it in your head that this, yes, person maybe was recruited or maybe will be recruited or he's a, or she's a potential target for an intelligence service. And of course, if your person is clean, you recruited this person, you have to explain to this person that based on his or her profile, what type of work they're doing, what type of information they have access to, they could be approached by other guys as well. And then you have to explain what kind of indications if someone is approaching you. You're pretty much explaining this person how you approach this person. So why? What the pattern kind of gave you this picture that this person for whom you need is a potential target. So, and uh, yeah. And then, yeah, one kind of, I had a few... One only was confirmed. Other one, other one, the person was just really paranoid. But in in, a, in, a, in the one case, yes, it was indication and some kind of signs that this person was approached by foreign intelligence service. But again, his his response was into this to this approach was not what he was asked by us to do. So we tried to explain to him be, be gentle. If they approach, it's good. It's not bad because in this case we can put it into a game. We can play with it. But the person decided, yeah, use his fist on the table and just, no, I'm not going to work for you guys. Screw you, I'm going to report you. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning, you mentioned counterintelligence, that you're an FSB counterintelligence officer. So just for our listeners that aren't part of this world, that means that you're recruiting sources to get information about foreign powers that are trying to spy on Russia? Yeah. 
yes, foreign sources, sources who will be not a spying on Russia, but spying spying for Russia, collecting information on behalf of the Russian state. That's what we're looking for. We, when we're recruiting source, we need the source to give us information about what's going on outside. If it's yeah. a foreign businessman, yes. Yeah, That's okay. what we're looking for. Okay. Yes, sorry. But you would would you also be looking for your friend John Seifer now? He was the chief of station in Moscow. Would that also be part of, not necessarily what you'd done when you were in, but that's what FSB would do as well. They would try to figure out who was the intelligence officers and the American embassies and consulates and so forth? Of course, it's, that's the huge part of the game. Basically, find, identify, and uh, be sure that this guy is not, not able to function on Russian soil. It's not only Americans, it's the Brits, again, Israeli, French, Germans, Belgians, everyone. So Mo Moscow, it's a huge, Russia itself, and it's a huge kind of point of interest for foreign intelligence agencies, like the United States, for example, as well, same here. And everyone, like, just name the country, you know the spies are here. You know, your, your main job is just to identify, find them, and be sure that they won't be able to operate. Mm -hmm. So it's not a Hollywood, no one's going to try to kill anyone. The idea is just to be sure that guys were not able to run an intelligence operation on Russian soil. Yes. And of course, when you're working with your sources, like in my case, you have to orient your sources to identify these potential threats. So you're teaching your sources, report to you, and uh, keep, uh, keep attention, keep an eye on kind of activity like that. You can explain to them what they have to look for, what they have to listen for, where maybe at some point you just can target them, just specifically just go and check this person. Try to approach, circle around. We'll see if the person's going to approach you. That's a bingo. It's like different layers of the game all the time. So it's not, it's multitasking, put it this way. You just, it's not just one line of work. Like we just need how this money goes. No, it's a pretty broad approach. For this as well, we had a CIA operations officer on a couple of months back, and he said that 10% of CIA operations officers recruit 90% of the good sources and the other 90% recruit the other 10%. Did you find the same thing in the FSB? Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just, look, to get, put it this way, let's just give you an example. Let's use example not of the country, but let's say a corporation. Inside the corporation, you have about 25, 50,000 workers. How many of them have access to really sensitive information about this company? 1%, maybe. So it's pretty much top-level management, some engineers and such, right? So you have about five or 10 operatives are working in this company. Easiest target to recruit workers. How much information they can give you? They can give you something, but it's not so much, right? So it's easy target. Maybe they, some of them will be recruited. You can learn a thing or two. Let's say you have several operatives are gone. They're just busy with that. Then you have people who will work in the higher level, like mid-level management. They might recruit one or two people. Fantastic. And then maybe one will be able to recruit someone at a high executive level who has access to everything. That's pretty much the pure mathematics in this. Same thing is here. Like you, out of a thousand people out there, maybe only one, maybe one has access to something really valuable. The rest can give you just overall information, small tiny piece of the puzzle. Maybe they heard some rumors. Maybe they had some kind of a small piece of paper on their table, which is really interesting for us. But it's not going to give you the full picture. So maybe only one person out of this thousand is going to have the access to the full picture. So if you recruit them, yes, that's a bingo. That's the, your golden fish. That's the main asset you have. 
all the rest of the guys, they're still doing the work as well. They're still giving you some piece of the information. But again, it's not the uh, kind of uh, the holy grail of all of it. It would be great to go over more of the story. Maybe we can do this another time about your defection from Russia and coming to the States. And, you know, we've spoke about this. You've had a very long and tortuous and complicated process. So maybe we can do that another time. I just want to go on to discuss what you're up to now because it's very interesting. So tell us what you're up to now. So you mentioned real spy, real stories. You're involved with spycraft. So there's lots of things that you have going on. So just tell us a little bit more about what you're up to now. Will do. So several years ago, I started to work with the publishing company, comic publishing company called the Aftershock Comics. Uh, guys are really great. And I made already two books with them. One was Red Atlantis. It's just, um, kind of, I'm co-creator of the original idea together with my wife, Victoria, and my writing partner, Nicholas Litz from LA. Project was submitted to Aftershock by our another friend, Ross Schneiderman, who is a former editor of the Newsweek, who actually just asked, Ross, can you just, I'm in your opinion, can you read the story? And uh, we thought we were writing some TV series. So Ross took it and without telling us, he just sent it to Aftershock to his friend, uh, Lee Kramer, who is owner of the company. And about a week later, we've got an offer to make a comic book based on that. So it, we said, yeah, why not? Let's try. So that was my first comic comic book experience. They gave us a fem- absolutely phenomenal research, uh, Stephanie Phillips. We've been working with her all the way. whole book was accomplished. It was released two years ago. And it was actually on sale in the International Spy Museum, I guess. I'm not sure, guys, you still can, but maybe you can buy it in Spy Museum. Otherwise, you can buy it in Barnes & Noble. And you can check your local comic stores. I'm not sure they have it or not, but... Five-in-one edition was released, 120 pages book it was released last year. And again, still you can buy it in Barnes & Noble. I guess it's available on Amazon, maybe some other places. Just check, just Google it. For sure, you can find it through the international, through the uh, through Aftershock website. So that was one story. It was sci-fi, paranormal, spy, thriller. Interesting element, I guess, an issue one. Fighting scene when the main character fighting with the two federal agents here in States, it was actually orchestrated. We filmed it. My wife and I, we, we've been fighting. We just filmed it and we sent it to the writer and the artist and they put it all together. She's a martial artist as well. So for her, it was easy to get it. But again, scene is completely authentic. So after that, after Shock, we had this idea to do the graphic novel based on our journey here in States, in the United States, from the moment we arrived to the Dominican Republic and up to now. Aftershock said, let's do the graphic novel based on that. And they call it Almost American. We worked together with Ron Martz, who is absolutely a phenomenal writer. And the book was released last September, so September 2021. Now all five issues are out there. You can find them in the comic book stores. You can find them online as well. And five and one, so 120 something pages with extra material is coming. In a few weeks, unfortunately, to the global uh, supply chain crisis, it was delayed on three months due to it was surprise, surprise, no paper in Canada. So <laughs> finally it was printed and now it's, it will be in the stores. And again, Barnes & Noble, Spy Museum, Amazon, comic book shops, guys check it there. Uh, stories told in my voice because my wife, she wants to tell the story of how she sees it. I think it will be a lot of negative about me in this case, but I want to I want let I want to give her this chance, let her deal with that. Working on these two graphic novels gave me an idea like why 
we can't make something on our own. And I wanted this to be owned from the intelligence community. So I discussed it with John Seifer and Jerry O'Shea. Uh, we put some ideas together. Now we are in the middle of talks with the potential partners and investors for this project. Hopefully soon we can secure the deal and we can launch this enterprise. And we will be one of the kind, the only existing graphic novel company which is really dedicated to tell the stories about the spies, special ops and confrontal officers all around the globe. Range of the stories pretty much before the crisis and up to now. So the huge playground. And we want to tell just these stories. Besides that, I'm working on several projects. I'm consulting a few books, and we're going to discuss pretty soon one of the books with one of the former CIA analysts. It's a really great book is coming, and I was consulting them on the Russian side. I'm not going to tell anything more. I am involved in several TV projects right now. We're developing them, documentary projects, working with a really great team. It's a documentary series about crazy Soviet paranormal experiences. Experience like in the U.S. it was MK Ultra. In the Soviet Union it was more like, more like a nuclear punk type thing. So they've been trying to train ghosts as a spice. They've been trying to create some superhuman hybrid apes just to work in some got forgotten forbidden, uh, some minings in the middle of Siberia. So we kind of want to tell the stories. It's more like a myth busters from the spy perspective. I'll show Andrew a link. He won't be able to distribute it, but it's a cool one. We have several other documentary series. Um, besides that, it's pretty much, that's it. The rest of the projects is really, really on raw stage. So I can't give you any details, but it's, it's going to happen. Okay. And Real Spies, Real Stories, just to summarize, it's basically a series where the stories of intelligence officers, intelligence operations are going to be told. They're going to be based on real events. They're going to be based on the stories of real historical examples that happen in history. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.